Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. The Buck Sexton Show. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. The future of talk radio. Buck Sexton. Team, welcome to the Freedom Hut. Buck Sexton here with all of you. Thank you so much for joining. A privilege and a pleasure, as always. 844-900-2825. 844-900-BUCK. Oh, my. We have much to discuss. I even have some uh, some breaking news, courtesy of the New York Times. I think it just broke in the last couple of hours. I could be off on that, but generally... Generally, I my, I go with my instincts. My instincts are right. Uh, but we've got lots to talk about today. The reauthorization of uh, FISA and the uh, back and forth on those negotiations. Talk a bit about that. We also have, uh, so the FISA law debate we'll discuss. We have a piece that I'm hoping I'll get to about how Democrats, Democrat politicians in the heartland, in the rural areas of America are like, hey, Maybe stop pushing the 37 pronouns and talking about how much you love non-Americans more than Americans, Democrat Party, and maybe focus on jobs and the economy and things that matter to Americans. That might be a good that might be a good place to start if you have aspirations to defeat Republicans in elected office. Uh, And so we'll get into that. If I have time, we'll uh, also follow up on. Oh, Pardon me for one second. There was also a, a great exchange between the author of Fire and Fury and Megan McCain over on The View, uh, where she, well, well, we'll play that audio for you in a little bit. She really gets gets to it and gets after it with that guy, and uh, bravo to her. I think she did a very, very good job today holding Mr. Wolf's feet to the fire, so to speak. But immigration still the single biggest focal point, the single biggest uh, issue this week in politics and in the news and wow it just got an infusion of a whole lot more uh intensity because of this story up on the New York Times from I think I think it just went up pretty much when we went on air here's the let me read some of this to you and then we're going to unpack it together because whoa this is now it's the uh, the header on the Drudge Report. It's if, if you are on social media, there is a hashtag that is not safe for work that is making the rounds all over all over the place. I would bet because uh, there's some choice verbiage, choice language used by the commander in chief here. Uh, according to this story, now is it fake news? I don't know. Trump may in fact never have said this. I, I, I do not. I do not have an answer for you on this. But I'm going to have to read you some of this story, which is it is uh, liberals are freaking out about it. That's that's a one way to put it. So here's what's going on. New York Times piece from just a little earlier today. Trump alarms lawmakers with disparaging words for Haiti and Africa. And here is what they say 
about this piece. Quote, President Trump on. Oh, wait, I'm sorry. This is this must have been from yesterday. So it was from last night. But whatever. It's a new story. We haven't talked about it. President or it was just reported today, but the meeting was yesterday. There we go. All right. We're getting into the quote now. Sorry. Here we go. President Trump on Wednesday balked at an immigration deal that would include protections for people from Haiti and African countries, demanding to know at a White House meeting why he should accept immigrants from, quote, uh, crap countries. He did not say crap. And he also put in uh, he put in the term whole as part of the quote. So we will say crap countries. As the quote, because I cannot say what the president allegedly said here. Returning to this quote, though, rather than people from places like Norway, according to people with direct knowledge of the conversations, Mr. Trump's remarks left members of Congress attending the meeting in the cabinet room alarmed and mystified. They were there discussing an emerging bipartisan deal to give legal status to immigrants illegally brought to the United States as children, the people said. Speaking on, okay, etc. cetera. Uh, when Mr. Trump heard that Haitians were among those who would benefit, he asked if they could be left out of the plan, uh, according to people familiar with the conversation, asking, why do we want people from Haiti here? The comments were reminiscent of the ones the president made last year in an Oval Office meeting with cabinet officials and administration aides, where he complained about admitting Haitians to the country, complaining that they all had AIDS, as well as Nigerians, who he said would never go back to their huts, according to officials who heard the statements in person or were briefed on the remarks by people who did. The White House vehemently denied last month that Mr. Trump made those remarks. I mean, this look at this now. We've got people, we've got this big immigration debate happening here. And just, just when the pressure would be at its, at its maximum, just when it is absolutely critical, all of a sudden the New York Times stumbles upon some folks who are saying the president said something that is racially uh, inflammatory, racially insensitive, having to do with immigration right when we are in the midst of this immigration debate. It, it does seem, look, I was not in that room, but it does seem very convenient, doesn't it? It does seem like a return to form for the media here, which is that when you can't win the argument, make it about Trump and by extension, the Republicans being a racist, make it about Trump being a misogynist, being a fascist, a Nazi, all all this stuff. Right. Go ad hominem. Attack the president himself. Attack his integrity, his honor, his credibility, whatever it may be. Because I think. What we've seen over the last few days is that Democrats can't win the immigration debate on the merits when it is exposed for the American people to actually see and hear. And so what's one way to ratchet up the pressure? Now, you may be saying, well, Buck, I mean, this is not going to put pressure on Trump. He's not going to he's not going to waver. And maybe he will. Maybe he won't. It will put pressure, though, on members of Congress who are now going to feel like, uh oh, you know, this is this is the, the heat's gotten turned up here a little bit because of what Trump said. I, I better make sure that I'm a pro dreamer, pro DACA Republican. I don't want to run a, a reelection campaign where I'm being called a racist or alt right or all these other things. 
So uh, you have the White House coming out. Uh, we actually, this is from uh, Raj Shaw, who's the White House Deputy Press Secretary. We had him on the show earlier this week. He's written the following, quote, certain Washington politicians choose to fight for foreign countries, but President Trump will always fight for the American people. Like other nations that have merit-based immigration, President Trump is fighting for permanent solutions that make our country stronger by welcoming those who can contribute to our society, grow our economy, and assimilate into our great nation, end quote. So, uh, I'm sorry, but this was first reported by the Washington Post, and now that, that's what I thought initially. Now the New York Times is doing its own story based on the Washington Post story. Uh, so you get the Times and the Post getting into this together here. And it, it like I was saying, it, it seems very convenient for their side. It gives them a huge opening to make this about Trump xenophobia and racism and all this other stuff because – You've been seeing over the course of this week, okay, Trump said, yeah, DACA, maybe we can do something on DACA. But you know what else we're going to do? A wall. There has to be a wall. And you know what else we're going to do? We're going to have workplace enforcement. That just happened this week with the raids at various 7-Elevens across the country by Immigrations and Customs Enforcement. We just had the director of, of ICE with us yesterday saying, yeah, you got to enforce the laws or else this is all a joke. I mean, these are all very, very straightforward propositions that I'm talking about here. When we're looking at immigration, it's a complicated subject, but when you drill down into any one issue, it's quite clear what's right and what's not. You know, it, it, we either have immigration laws or we don't. Congress is responsible for writing those laws. The executive branch is responsible for enforcing them. And if it's just all a big ruse, if nobody's really going to take it seriously, then why are we wasting our time? What's the point? And if the federal government is not going to enforce immigration laws, I want to know on what grounds they choose to enforce taxation law, for example, against me or anybody else for that matter who's sick of the confiscatory federal income tax that we have to pay. Oh, no, those laws we got to take seriously, but the immigration laws are a joke. Notice... Notice how that's just based in what's convenient for the progressive left. There's no principle that's at work here. It's just, no, no, uh, we, we, we like illegal aliens, but, you know, we, we, so we're not going to enforce the law there. But we also really like taking money from you on, under threat of force, by the way. You know, if you don't pay your taxes, if any one individual doesn't pay his taxes, it has zero impact whatsoever on the debt, on the functioning of government, whatever. And yet they will they will separate you from your family if you continue to refuse to pay your taxes. They will send men with guns to your home eventually, and they will take you physically and lock you up and take away your freedom. And you could make an argument. How come on? I mean, it's separating families. Uh, you know, you're a productive member of society. You just you know, you just think that federal income tax is too high. You're paying taxes whenever you're out there buying stuff. Right. Oh, the federal government, they're really going to send people door to door and. Put all the uh, put all the tax protesters, uh, the the civil disobedience movement against taxation in prison. The answer is yes, they will. But with illegal immigration, there are so many, and and they're and they're you know as uh, I saw earlier this week, what was is uh, Ramos Jose Jose Ramos? Um, he was uh, on Tucker Carlson's show, and he's saying, oh, you know they 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 are working in restaurants and they're. Picking our food and, you know, that's what illegal aliens are doing. I'm like, this is an emotional appeal. 
There's no answer to the rule of law question from them because they don't believe in the rule of law when it comes to immigration. They being the Democrat Party. They just don't believe in it. And so here we are. Biggest story now the media is running with is Trump referred to some countries as crappy. And and they don't even have to take take it to the next level of analysis because the the immediate implication is the countries he referred to as crappy and he didn't say crappy. So I'm just you know, if you look for the quote, he said something else, which is uh, he used saltier language. Uh, But the countries he referred to as crappy are majority uh, non-white. And so there's a racial component to it is what they will say. And, you know, there, there's so first of all, the White, the White House has said in the past he didn't say this. I have a hard time believing that the president would say some of the things. Look, I know that you know Trump shoots from the hip, so to speak. And I know that he's uh, not always the message discipline is not airtight with him. I get that. And I think that he can be occasionally. Uh, what's the word? You know, he's, uh, you know, he says locker room talk. There's that happens. But I don't think he would say something that was uh, demeaning to a group of people uh, and with that intention. I don't know, but I don't think he would do that because I don't think that's who Donald Trump is. I do know that this serves quite a convenient purpose for the media right now, which is to make the discussion about how Trump is uh, is a racist or racially insensitive on the issue of immigration specifically. And therefore, anyone who's with him on this is also somehow guilty of this, you know, guilty of racism by association or guilty of racism because of their support for his policies and his immigration uh, demands going into this negotiation with the Democrats. Uh, and there's just a, a part of me that's really sick of never being, you know, we're not allowed to talk about the issue. The media will, it's always about, oh, do you really want to take this valedictorian away from his family and people are going to cry and why are you so mean? Well, you know, do that with taxes. Not a single person, not a single human being on the planet can make an argument, for example, that if I fail to pay my little very unimpressive income taxes, uh, that's going to affect the country in a negative way. It's like saying if I don't vote, we don't have a we don't have a republic. Right. I mean, my vote doesn't really matter. But in the aggregate, you have policies, you create them and you have to enforce the laws. You know, if I vote twice, I've broken the law. Does it matter to an election? No, but we have laws for reasons. Those laws are in place for a reason. Immigration laws in place for a reason. They don't want us to talk about that. They want us to focus on something else, anything else. And they want to make us afraid to look at this issue for what it really is, the immigration issue. And that's why right now you're seeing so much on this. But maybe we could talk a little bit also about countries and how we pick different countries in terms of immigration and what our previous immigration history has been and do a little bit of that and we'll have an immigration a former immigration judge joining us to speak about what's going on in the courts what's going on with enforcement all of that so we've got a lot coming up here team stay right there welcome back to the buck sexton show we have a lot of lines lit obviously this subject is uh it's getting people fired up so let's get into it i want to hear from you on at 844-900-2825 uh, let's see what we got from Charlotte in Pennsylvania. Hey, Charlotte. Hi, thank you for taking my call. I wanted to point out that the illegal aliens make out 4% of this population in our country, yet they're 21% of the federal prison population. And of the DACA, they're using a number like 680,000. 55% of them are employed, 45% unemployed. 
and of the 55%, only 4% work in agriculture. The others are working in sales, uh, food services, manufacturing, blah, blah, blah. And it's like 14,000 are in uh, agriculture. Now, those other jobs are jobs Americans would do. So that's a bunch of crap that, that, that they take jobs that Americans Yeah, and, and the moment that wage, if wages had to be higher for farming, for seasonal farming, for example, mechanization is a much bigger thing on a lot of these farms than anybody ever really talks about. I mean, the, 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 exactly. days, of, the days of seasonal migrant workers and all that, it's, it's changing dramatically because of technology. And even then, they can have a seasonal green card or something, you know, come and go like they used to historically. And then the other thing I wanted to point out is that when these DACA people turn 18, they're just as guilty and culpable as, of their, as their parents as being in this country illegally. And they should be jailed likewise. I'm sick of it. They said, if you get let all these DACA people in here with their level of education and, and their level of failure... They're going to cost us $26 billion at the end of 10 years just to have them in this country to live. The Democrats just see it as Democrats just see it as votes. And unfortunately, Democrats and Republicans who are some business owners see it as cheap labor. Charlotte, thank you. for Well, we got to identify those businesses. Yeah, well, they are. Immigration and Customs Enforcement is doing that. You see the headlines last couple of days. Thank you for calling in, Charlotte. Uh, Look. You know, you can't open the door to this and then be upset when people walk through it, right? You can't say, oh, you know, look at look at the dreamers. It's all they're all valedictorians. They're amazing. You know, they're our future entrepreneurs. They're, they're going to start the Googles of the next century or, you know, whatever, the next decade. Uh, and then we say, OK, well, how many actually how many illegals are in prison? And how many illegals have committed crimes in addition to their legal status in this country? Oh, how dare you? You know, you're saying they're all not saying they're all criminals at all. Just we're, we're going to play the. What kind of benefit for the country are we talking about here, game? Then let's play it. Let's actually talk. Let's look at the stats. Uh, Lonnie in West Virginia. Lonnie, welcome to Freedom Hut. Lonnie. Hey, hello. Yes, sir. Yeah, hey, um, just what that woman said. I called for another reason, but I want to make a comment on what that woman said. I'm from West Virginia, right across the river from Ohio. When we were kids, there's a farm over there, Harrison Farms, that we used to go pick tomatoes, and we got paid. Now, guess who picks the tomatoes? Yeah, illegal immigrants have displaced uh, displaced workers. There's no question. I, I've read. I, mean, I should have Professor Rojas from Harvard come on and talk about this. He's the guy who's done the most, uh, the most study that I'm aware of, the most comprehensive study of it. It absolutely depresses wages in a localized, state by state, county by county way. No question. Um, and I'm sorry, Lonnie, got about 30 seconds. Real quick, does the media and all the rest of the people in the world think that Trump is so stupid that he would make a comment like that in front of people that hate him that would put that out? What, is that man that ignorant that he would do that? Obviously, I think that that's crazy, right? But that's what they're reporting. New York Times, Washington Post. They're just trying to take him down. Lonnie, thanks for the call from West Virginia. Good to talk to you, sir. All right, we've got a former immigration judge to weigh in here in just a few minutes on this, so stay right there. All right, so earlier in the week you saw a crazy decision. We've talked about it here on the show from a court in California uh, having to do with DACA. And you have big discussions going on right now on Capitol Hill about the future of U.S. immigration policy, DACA, the wall, all of that is in play what should we make of all this? What's realistic as solutions? And also, what should we on the, what should we be on the lookout for when it comes to either head fakes or just sheer dishonesty from the left? We've got 
Art Arthur on the line now. He's a resident fellow at the Center for Immigration Studies and a former immigration judge. Thank you for having me. Greatly appreciate being here. Uh, Art, great to have you. Thank you so much. So let's start with uh, what, what you think about the problem of activist judges when it comes to the immigration policy. It seems like whether it's the so-called Muslim ban or any number of things that have gone through the court so far, you've got judges who are playing the role of the legislature when it comes to immigration. It seems like the activism has really gotten out of control. I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, reading Judge Alsop's order uh, out of the Northern District of California today uh, or yesterday just reinforces that conclusion. It almost seems to be a uh, preordained determination uh, that DACA is going to continue. The logic of the decision is very difficult to follow, and in parts it is contradictory. So, um, quite frankly, I think it's an issue. I think it's an issue that the Supreme Court needs to deal with. And if you read between the lines of some of the recent Supreme Court decisions, including the rather terse uh, order allowing the presidential proclamation on travel to uh, continue from the Supreme Court, uh, I think they're sending a message to the lower courts that they need to trim their sails and uh, not be quite so as, uh, so political as they have been recently. How big a problem is the backlog that, I mean, you are a former immigration judge. I'm just wondering, how, how big is the backlog, and, and could it be fixed with, uh, is, is there a legislative solution to that? Is it just a problem of how the courts are currently constituted to deal with this issue? Why do we have such a big immigration backlog? Well, you know, it's funny that you bring that up, because uh, just this week or earlier this week, we did determined that, in fact, the backlog was a little bit bigger than we thought it was. We thought it was about 658,000 cases. But as a result of an order that uh, Attorney General Sessions has issued, in which he uh, requested review of a case involving administrative closure, it turns out that there are 350,000 additional cases that are sitting off to the side that have been administratively closed. That is taken off the court's dockets. No action's been taken on them. Uh, and they're just hanging out there. So in reality, there are about a million cases for the nation's 360 judges to handle, which is a huge number. Part of the problem has been, uh, again, activist judges in some of the circuit courts. They've uh, made the rules uh, more difficult, including the Supreme Court, made the rules uh, very difficult for the immigration judges to apply in uh, determining who is removable. Another problem is the fact that, you know, resources. For some reason, the Obama administration was sweeping these cases under the rug rather than providing the necessary resources, the needed judges and clerks and courtroom staff that uh, are required to handle these cases. In essence, this became nothing more than an administrative amnesty uh, for the people who uh, benefited from uh, administrative closure. So it can be handled. Uh, the attorney general needs to issue some bright line uh, decisions for judges to follow. Uh, Congress needs to make sure that uh, the resources are there and the president needs to follow through on his rhetoric. But Art, that's very interesting. You're, you're telling me that for some, at least, and for the Obama administration, this large and you're telling me even larger than thought immigration court backlog is a feature, not a bug, in a sense. Like they prefer a, a limbo status gets to be so large that that then becomes the de facto reality going forward. Right. It, it, so they like this. 
I couldn't put it better. I mean, that's exactly what happened. I mean, when you have cases that are taking, you know, five, six, seven, ten years to hear, those people are basically being granted amnesty to remain in the United States almost indefinitely. And, yes, I believe it was a uh, fixture, not a bug, of uh, the Obama policy as it related to staffing and resources for the immigration courts. What do you say to people, and we're speaking to Art Arthur, who's a resident fellow at the Center for Immigration Studies, also himself a former immigration judge. What do you say to people, Arthur, who will just uh, come right out of them and say, well, you know, we're not going de- to deport these people, meaning illegal aliens, so we should just stop pretending and stop enforcing the laws about this? Well, here's the problem with that. When you stop enforcing the laws and you stop removing uh, removable aliens, you just encourage more people to come. You make the problem worse than it was. As long as we have a tight border, as long as we make it clear that if you're in the United States illegally and you're caught that you're going to be removed, people are going to be less likely to come here. The fact is the vast majority of the people that appeared before me were people who had come to the United States to work. The pay differential was much higher in the United States than it was in their home countries who wanted to come here to work. But if they, didn't, if they thought that they wouldn't have the opportunity to work, they'd be detained and then removed from the United States. They wouldn't pay the money to come here. They wouldn't run the risk of hiring a smuggler and going through the very dangerous uh, journey to the United States. These are rational actors, and we need to uh, give them you know, good reason not to act illegally. Speaking to Art Arthur here, resident fellow at Center for Immigration Studies. Uh, Art, tell me about... This uh, temporary protected status the Trump administration has ended specifically for 200,000 immigrants from El Salvador. How does this work? And is, is this surprising at all? What should we make of this? Well, in 2001, there was an earthquake in El Salvador. Consequently, uh, Salvadorans who were in the United States at the time were allowed to remain temporarily uh, until El Salvador could get itself back on its feet. Well, that was... 17 years ago, almost, and, uh, you know, successive administrations have just kicked the can down the road with respect to these people. Every 18 months, they've granted them an extension uh, because of various factors. There's too much rain. There's too little rain. And, in fact, coffee rust, I'm not even sure what that is, but it has been cited as a factor for uh, continuing temporary protected status. This is an abuse of uh, a humanitarian uh, procedure that Congress has specified and made clear is only supposed to exist for a very temporary period of time. But again, for El Salvador, it was 17 years. It will be 18 years by the time it ends. For Honduras and Nicaragua, it was almost 20. So we need to get a handle on this. Congress needs to step in, and Congress needs to amend the temporary protected status uh, provision to make it clear that it really means what it says, that it is temporary. We're, we're a big-hearted country, and we don't want to send people back to harm, but we also don't want to have our, uh, our, our, our hospitality abused by individuals. And quite frankly, politics starts to play into this and takes over the process, and, it, and this status never ends. Art, I know I started the interview asking you about activist judges, and clearly I find that to be a problem. But if you would for a second, if you could just pretend that you were back on the uh, immigration court bench and you could give one sweeping order, uh, let's just assume it was constitutional. But if you had one one way or one wish, so to speak, to make immigration better in this country, what would it be if you could just have your way with it? 
It would be the individuals who are removable from the United States who come to the attention of ICE or who are under final orders of removal actually uh, you know, get their due process and be removed. That's the only way that we're going to get a handle on this system. And the people that are hurt the most by uh, the you know, wave of illegal aliens we've seen coming into the United States are the most vulnerable members of our own population, our own citizens, our own you know, lawful permanent residents, people who did it the right way, because they're the ones who are competing with these folks for jobs. They're the ones who are paying the price, both in terms of wages and lost employment opportunities. So the one thing that I would do is I would enforce the law. Art Arthur of the Center for Immigration Studies, Thank you so much for joining us, sir. Appreciate it. Great talking to you as always. Team, we're going to roll into a quick break. We'll be right back. So the media says Trump might have referred to some countries as crap holes. But he didn't say crap holes. He said something else. But this is a family show. So uh, but that's, that's now the, the biggest story of the day. That's what's getting everyone's attention. A few things on this that I, I wanted to get into before, but we had to have our esteemed guest join who has been on the front lines of the immigration judiciary side of all of all this. Well, let me just say that we, there, there, are, there are a few a few levels of analysis that is worth going into here. One is that the way conservatives should view immigration, the way I view immigration, and the way I would like our government to view in immigration is that it is a very precious thing to be able to be in this country, to work in this country, an even more precious one to be a citizen of this country, and we want the best. We want the best individuals. I want a brain surgeon from uh, Switzerland the same way I want a brain surgeon from Taiwan, the same way I want a brain surgeon from Nigeria, the same way, you know, we just want people with skills who want to be in America, who love this country, and who go through the legal process. But individuals basing it by countries, and I know this now gets into the, the travel ban, everything else, is imprecise and problematic. And that the, the, the core of our immigration system should be about merit and about each and every individual. What's interesting, though, is that the diversity lottery, which Trump is trying to get rid of, is in place because some countries have a tough time. Or, 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 dis, or disproportionately unable to have immigrants who can compete in an immigrant pool, either through chain migration means or through, you know, skills-based visas. And so you create this diversity lottery so that people from countries that otherwise have a, have a tough time getting immigrants into this country have a shot, basically. So that's the whole basis for the diversity lottery, is that some countries have a tougher time. And then there's a whole other level of this discussion, too, which is that while I look, I understand people are sensitive. People have, you know, their their uh, the country that they, they came from or where their parents or even the grandparents came from. You know, you, you make a, you make an Italy joke in front of the wrong third generation Italian-American and, you know, you might get a knuckle sandwich, you know. So, look, people are have a pride, even very patriotic and wonderful Americans have a pride in the. Uh, the country of their uh, their parents, their grandparents, their ancestors, or themselves. I get that. So I I don't think, I think that there's some tact that should be used when talking about this. But let's also be very clear. 
Some countries are kind of crappy. It is a real thing. Am I a bad person if I sit here and say, if I were the president, which I know would be amazing because I'd be great at it, but if I were the president and I said, you know, North Korea is a crappy country, and I didn't say everybody from North Korea is a crappy person, that would be morally, ethically, and logically false, unsound, and wrong. But if I said North Korea is a crappy country, I don't think anybody could make a case that that's, that that's wrong. In fact, that's just an honest assessment. It's, it, is, it is a bad country. It doesn't mean the people are bad, right? The Soviet Union was a bad political, ideological system, enslaved hundreds of millions of people over generations, ruined lives, murdered millions and millions of people. That doesn't mean that anybody living in you know, Moscow or, or Prague circa 1950 was, was bad or evil, right? There's a difference. Criticizing the system or criticizing the structure in place is different from criticizing the individuals, and we should always be clear and careful about that. But there are crappy countries. I can tell you, having spent time in two war zones, that neither of those war zones were the worst country I've ever been to. I can't get into the worst country I've ever been to for other reasons, but I can tell you it was not a country that was undergoing a war at the time. And it was crappy because it was dangerous, poorly run, tons of disease, tons of poverty, and the government officials were robbing the people blind, etc., etc. Doesn't mean that when I was there, I looked down upon each and every individual in the country. That would be that would be preposterous, immoral, and dumb. But let's not pretend there's not such a thing as a crappy country. There are definitely crappy countries. And there are definitely some some countries are clearly better run and better countries than others. You see, this part of the problem here is that the left thinks so much in terms of identity politics that they actually think of nation states as ethnicities, too. That's that's a very this is why, you know, they'll say, oh, well, you know, if there's uh, when you refer to certain countries, they'll forget about the fact that there may be a large portion of that country that's not one ethnicity or one religious group and they'll just they'll assume for the purposes of you know victimology politics that there's a discriminatory intent with certain laws that deal with one country or another in a certain way all right so you know if we were to ban flights into this country from egypt for security reasons they would say it's anti-muslim meanwhile 10 percent of egypt is christian but most coptic christian most uh, liberals neither know nor care about the actual demography of these countries. They just think non-white and Muslim country, therefore, that's their first line of, of attack, their first line of argument. Uh, but there are, there are definitely countries that are uh, riddled with corruption, uh, with, with disease, with violence, with all kinds of problems. And it's a shame that we can't, do, we, we can't just show up and make everything better for those folks, but we can't. We should, if we had a merit-based immigration system, be in a position where we take people in from any country based upon their skills, based upon the most objective criteria we can come up with to make this country stronger and better. And, of course, top of the list should be, you know, we want immigrants who love America. And we have so many of them, right? I mean, that, that is one thing that is lost in this discussion. You know, on the one hand, you've got these DACA so-called dreamers who are demanding something from a government that they have no right, no legal right to demand anything of. 
And then I look around and I see all these other immigrants who went through what is an onerous and difficult immigration process and did it the right way. And they love this country and they got to feel like, what is this? Demand to be here? I, I could have just shown up and said, you know, I, I'm I'm here so I get to stay. No other country operates on that premise, I, I should note. You know, and there, and there are countries that have very, very serious problems. You know, I mean, Mexico just today was uh, the, the State Department has a travel advisory on five different states in Mexico. I know it's because of narco trafficking and the drug cartels and the violence there. But, you know, what, what's going on with that? Do we get to address? Do we get to talk about why is Mexico having so many problems in, in its governance? What can we do to help? But let's not pretend like Mexico is as well run a country as, you know, Sweden is or Singapore is or, you know, you name it. Right. There are obviously problems in Mexico. So so not all countries are the same. I mean, this is one of the the uh, underlying fallacies of the left's view of, of the entire world, of international relations, of everything. Right. This is a fallacy that comes up with regard to religious belief and a tendency toward terrorism. Liberals are like Christians become terrorists at the same rate as as Muslims today. They will they they believe that that it's just as likely that a Christian will be a terrorist as a Muslim. Factually, statistically, that's just preposterous. It's just not true. So it's a it's a falsehood to say that Christianity in the world we live in today has the same likelihood of having someone radicalized as a belief system as Islam. Islam is it's more likely. It doesn't mean everyone's a terrorist, doesn't mean that it's a bad thing. It just but we look at we should look at the facts and we should look at reality as it is. Yeah. And this is true when we're looking at countries as well. So I agree it's imprecise to base immigration uh, quotas or policy based on a country and not individuals. We should focus on the individuals. But let's not pretend that all countries are the same. And oh by the way our country's the best. This tax bill is terrible. We need to be strong against it. Right now, about two out of every three people in America think it is a bad tax bill, and yet the Republicans just keep jamming it forward. This is Armageddon. Uh, this is a very big deal. Because you know why? There's really a very hard way to come back from this. They take us further more deeply into debt, what can you do but raise taxes? We'll mark today as one of the darkest black letter days in the long history of this Senate. Now, under the cover of darkness and with the aid of haste, a flurry of last minute changes will stuff even more money into the pockets of the wealthy and the biggest corporations while raising taxes on millions in the middle class. Buck Sexton here, back with you all now. That's one version of tax cuts you heard from a bunch of Democrats there. It's terrible. It's so awful. Oh, gosh. Uh, and, and then there's some other folks who are saying, you know what, this is actually a really good thing. Um, to, uh, it's something that we should uh, be happy about. And what I have to love is you got Nancy Pelosi out there saying that this is crumbs, that people getting a thousand dollars back at tax time that they would not have otherwise had is is meaningless. Well, if you're Nancy Pelosi and your husband's worth like 40 or 50 million bucks, yeah, then a thousand dollars is meaningless. But when you have over half the country struggling 
if they were faced with a $500 unexpected expense, $1,000 is really helpful. So you can listen to the Schumers or the Pelosi's, uh, Schumers and the Pelosi's and the Elizabeth Warren. Oh, I'm Elizabeth Warren. I'm really, I know about economics. Uh, you can listen to them or, I don't know, a Democrat, but one who at least understands dollars and cents like Jamie Dimon, who had this to say about tax cuts. I think one of the mistakes that people make is that somehow what's the impact tomorrow is going to have a huge cumulative effect. And I'm actually kind of surprised that people say having an uncompetitive tax system would be good for America. So the world, if you go back 20 years ago, the world was at almost 40 percent. We are 40 percent. Now most of the world is close to 20 percent and we're 40 percent. I look at competitive taxes for business as table stakes. It's a bad idea. And by most measures, it's driven capital, brains overseas, and, and some, I think it was Price Waterhouse, E&Y estimated 5,000 companies that would have been headquartered here are now headquartered overseas, mostly by acquisition of foreign companies. So it was a huge disadvantage. <clears throat> You're going to see companies doing things in the short run, like increasing wages and, and and a bunch of stuff like that or one-time bonuses. And we we may do something. We're going to announce it sometime later. So there's somebody who actually knows something about running a business, CEO of J.P. Morgan, one of the biggest investment banks in the world. And he's like, you know, there's there are people, and by people we mean Democrats and Democrat politicians, who think that, yeah, we'd be better off if we had a non-competitive tax system for corporations. It, we should give all international competition a leg up on us when it comes to the corporate world because you know fairness that's remember that was the obama way you know why should people have to pay more just because it's fair but what about what that does to the economy and what about what that does to those individuals who are struggling yeah it's about fairness what's fair whatever the progressive democrats say it's fair right so uh that's that's just quite a difficult case for i think the democrats to make and and win elections on at least which is you having more of your money is a bad thing uh if you have a little bit of your money back it's crumbs as nancy pelosi says it doesn't really matter and you have all these companies that are coming out now and you know the the proof is in the pudding my friends it's quite clear with these companies that are giving thousand dollar bonus checks to Employees, overwhelmingly employees who are middle class working folks, right? People that are trying to pay their bills. I don't even really like the term middle class. People who are trying, people who are working to pay bills to support themselves. They're getting a check that they weren't going to get otherwise because of what the GOP Congress, you know, we beat up on Congress a lot. Let's give them a little credit here. They did this. This is good. And the Trump uh, administration, President Trump signed it. You know, his, his name is on it. He gets credit for this, too. Even uh, Jim Cramer, who's a very, uh, very entertaining fellow in the world of finance, he had this to say about what's going on. One of the things, just historically, when Henry Ford raised wages to $5 a day, the number of employees that bought cars actually moved the U.S. GDP. I am wondering whether Walmart can't play a similar role. Look, you know, people are getting more wages. Wages are going up here. You've seen major companies, I mean, big, big ticket, major retailers, major service providers. They're paying their people more because of what Republicans did. When was the last time you could think of a Democrat doing something like this that helped so many people and that did such a gave such a boost to the economy? No, Democrats want to take from people who work for money. 
take from people who work for a living to spend more money in ways that they see fit and a lot of it on people who do not work for a living. You know, Romney got so much heat for the makers and takers thing and the 43% who won't vote for him. Romney was just telling the truth. Romney was just, like I was saying before about crappy countries versus decent or well-run countries. We should at least operate in reality. And our economic reality is that the federal government spends too much money. No, we have not dealt with that yet. And the debt is too large. And this is a problem. And I think Trump's going to have to face it probably in the second part of his first term. I hope. Depends on what happens in this midterm. But giving people more of their money back and making corporations competitive and repatriating capital. And these are all good things. And it's just so so obvious that Democrats are not in a position where they are rooting against the middle class. They are rooting against Main Street just because Trump has done something, the Republicans have done something that benefits them, right? They would rather see Main Street suffer and so that they could offer the promises of giving them more of other people's money when it's really their own money, right? This notion of the money's going to come from somebody else eventually, it's it's a fiction, right? Margaret Thatcher, the problem with socialism is you run out of other people's money. That's the problem the Democrats face all the time. Especially when you, I mean, you, they've got economic illiterates at the top of the Democratic Party right now. Nancy Pelosi knows nothing about a business or the economy, period. Nothing. Elizabeth Warren knows even less. I don't know. She's in negative territory. Chuck Schumer, you know, maybe knows a, a little more than Pelosi and, and Warren, but not much. I have absolutely no ideas for making anything better. Their only idea is to take more from you as you work hard and give it to somebody else who maybe isn't working at all. Or to give it to a bureaucrat to administer a program that's supposed to help you. But I saw this. I meant to mention this, by the way. There was this chart making the rounds over the weekend. I've got to track it down. That shows the growth in our, you know, speaking of health care for a second here. And the Democrat version of helping versus the Republican version of helping on an issue. And it was the growth in healthcare uh, providers versus the growth in healthcare administrators over the last thirty or forty years, and it's it's astonishing. Really, not a lot more doctors. You know, very difficult to become a doctor. I don't just mean in terms of the work, but you go like a half a million dollars in debt, and you got all this paperwork, mountains of bureaucracy, and all this stuff. And doctors are that's pretty much flat. You know, we're not we're not turning out a lot more doctors despite our aging population and everything else. But administrators, bureaucrats, people that you get to call up and you're like, oh, why isn't this covered? They go, well, I'm sorry, sir. I will check out now what's going on with your plan. Please hold. No, no, wait, wait. I, I need an, I need to see if I need to get in and see this doctor. Uh, no, we, we need a prior authorization form for the authorization from the previous authorization. Please hold. No, but I mean, I, I'm. I got an infection. I think I got to go to the hospital. Can you just tell me if it's covered? You know, no, you have to fill out three forms and you got to get it signed by your primary care, primary care physician. And all that is healthcare bureaucracy. And what that is are people that are in a position now where they stand between you and actually getting to see a doctor because they increase the cost. Bureaucracy is not your friend. We discussed this yesterday. And more money in your pocket, more money that does not go into the federal government's hands is a good thing for all of us. Democrats don't really have an answer for this. 
oh, Trump, Russia, collusion, Trump's a racist, Trump's a fascist. That's what they come up with. Because they can't win the debate. They can't win the argument. How, how many, I would love to see some town halls where some Democrats just stand around and say, you know, okay, you know, so I, I may have heard that some of you are getting checks from your employer for $1,000 because of the tax cut. Um, you don't need that $1,000. That's a bad idea. Why? I don't know. They can come up with a why. But all the nonsense they had about this just goes to show you they, they, they can't be happy for the success of the American people. They're actually rooting for failure because they will always, the Democrats, the status will always hold themselves up as the answer to any failure. The only answer to government failure is more government. The only answer to uh, stagnant wages and excessive regulation is more regulations about wages that will just create more problems in the marketplace for employment. That, that, that's what you get over and over. Same thing from them. They never learn. Um, but it's good to see that people are feeling the effects. I was saying this to you yesterday. I will keep repeating it throughout the year because it's so important. It's all about the agenda and results. Whether Trump called the country a crap hole or not at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter to anybody. Or it's not going to matter to anybody because we're never going to really know. And it doesn't affect you. It doesn't affect you. This affects you. The economy affects you. Healthcare affects you. And Democrats have nothing, nothing to offer in this regard. And that's why there's a little bit of a panic. You know, they're really hoping that, that Mueller was going to be their, their ace up the sleeve, that he was going to somehow stop this presidency in its tracks. They're getting desperate because it's not working. Trump is working. The Republican Party is actually getting its act together. All this other stuff, all the, the saturation media coverage of how terrible he is and how terrible this and that and the other thing is, not it's not they, they they're always going to have the left wing base along with them but americans who are being honest and paying attention are like you know what this is going pretty well 844-900-2825-844-900 buck give me a ring team i'll be right back with much more all right some lines lit mike in north carolina welcome to freedom hut sir uh, can you hear me yes sir we can all right um i was listening to your shield talk uh, right before your show came on, and um, oh man, I loved it. I'm the uh, civilization guy. Oh, you thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> Everybody needs to check it out. Um, there's a couple things I had to. Um, have, I mean, I was like screaming at the uh, phone, straight into Gibraltar, straight into Gibraltar, and you said it, and I was like, yes, <laughs> go, go. That's how they came over into Spain. But um, there's a Muslim tribe back then. There's Sunni Shiites, and then there's another one, ancient. Karajites. I mean, it starts starts with the case okay. yeah and yeah does that not remind you of uh isis how they act yes in fact in fact sometimes in uh in discourse among islamists and salafists they will refer to people that are are true hardliners as yeah. as karajites meaning that they're people that create fitna or dis fitna is the arabic word for discord within the community because yeah. they were they were kind of the original ultra hardliners and exactly yeah, yeah. And, and the sunnis and shiites uh joined together to destroy them <laughs> they were so crazy <laughs> yeah yeah and, that's right and, and when i saw isis come out i was like oh here we go again that's yeah that, that's go. it's used but, as a it's used as a pejorative term in in islamic circles to say that you know for people that think of themselves as very learned about it and everything they'll say oh those guys are, are karajites it's like 
Those guys are like, yeah. it's basically like saying those guys are nutso and they want to blow themselves up, right? I mean, because that, yeah. 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 No, I, I had uh, two more things really fast. Uh, Vlad the Impaler, um, uh, you remember in Baghdad, um, the, the, the Caliph uh, sent him up and uh, Vlad sent him back <laughs> in pieces. And, <clears throat> I'm sorry, <clears throat> and uh, the Vikings. Now, the, ca- the, way, the, the Caliph in, in Istanbul you're talking about. With Vlad. No, no, the Constantinople. No, no, that, that was the inter- uh, That was really interesting. How um, uh, Constantinople? Yeah, Constantinople. The, the leader there sent uh, word to um, uh, uh, I'm sorry, the Pope, and said, "Hey, we need help." And that's when uh, Richard and all of them came and said, "All right." But, but anyway, anyway, but the Vikings. Um, now, this is around the time we're, that... We're covering the, uh, a lot of territory here. <laughs> go ahead. Go ahead, Mike. <laughs> I know, but man, this, this, I love this. Um, that's why I, uh, um, I hope you, um, you know... Monday, new episode coming out, my friend. We're leading up to the, the, the conquest of Jerusalem by the Crusaders. Yes. Now, now see, I'd love to, I'd love to hear about that. because, uh, and, But then you had Vlad. Now, I know that was a little bit later, but Vlad sent them back packing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he did. Vlad, Vlad Tepes, <laughs> Vlad the Impaler. Yeah, he was yes, uh, the Order of the Dragon and was very effective at fighting against the, the Sultan or the Caliph, same same guy, uh, the Sultan's armies, because he was raised by the in the Ottoman court, learned how to speak their language, learned their military uh-huh. tactics, and understood them very well. In fact, the night attack at Targovist was so successful in part because Vlad, the basis for Dracula, uh, understood how they would set up their camp at night, knew where you know knew where they were likely to place sentries, and was also able to call out to them in Turkish, which helps. Hey, hey how about when he put his um, horseshoes on backwards on his horses? Yeah, so to, to were, obscure yeah. the uh, yeah to obscure the the trail, dude. We could talk history all night, Mike. But I got to <laughs> thanks, man. <laughs> no, I'm so glad you like Shields High. Yeah, you know, rock and roll. Thank you for. I'm glad you like the podcast. Share it with some friends. All right, we got to get we got to get those numbers rolling. Shields High, buddy. Um, it's fun. I sit here talking to Mike about history. Let's go with Dex in Tex. Dex in Texas. What's going on? Hey, Buck. This is my second time actually talking to you. Oh, great to have you back, sir. Well, I, I, I can't get enough of your show, really. I wish it was 24-7. Thank you so much. Story. Um, I, uh, I listen to Shields High. Very, very, very well done. First class. I suspect that it's probably... Some of the uh, Hollywood script writing that you tried uh, earlier on in your life. But <laughs> Indeed, I, wanna, I, I do want to say one thing. You made a grammatical error. Oh, did I say uh, comprise instead of compose? No. Oh well, now I've just outed myself on that one. <laughs> no, what uh, what you did is in your date you you mention the date and then you go AD when in reality AD should precede the date. Yeah, in the year of our Lord as, before the date. That's that's true. Yes. yes. Hey, but hold on a hold on a second, Dex. I do feel like I get some bonus points because I didn't put CE or the Common Era. Because come on. Oh yeah, no, no. I'm so <laughs> glad you did not do the things like BCE and CE. Oh, yeah, that's 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 that. wimp stuff right there. Come on, that's nonsense. <laughs> so no, you get you get points for that. But I'm just letting you know. And that's the same grammatical error that's actually on the Apollo 11 uh, uh, plaque on the moon. Oh, is it? Yeah, they put 1969 A.D. instead of A.D. 1969. Good enough for the moon, Dex. Good enough for me. But no, but seriously, man, first of all, I always like to hear if there's ever a mistake, uh, let me know. You guys can always write to me on Facebook, too. And Dex, I'm glad you enjoyed the uh, the podcast, man. We got another one coming up one, on Monday. One last thing, 
One last thing. Please research the Battle of Sheikes Verbar in Hungary. Uh, oh. Because that is that is the reason we have noon whistles and noon bells all over the Western world. All right. Hey, send me something on Facebook with the uh, you know give me give me like a little precy on what you think would be kind of a cool way to approach that, and we'll do it, man. Uh, I, d- I don't do Facebook, but I'll send you an email. Email officialteambucketgmail.com, All right. All right, sir. You take care. Shield side, Dex. Thank you, sir. People people like the history show. See, here I am talking about crappy countries. People just want to talk about the history show. I get, hey, look, I love it. I'm gonna, this weekend. Miss Molly's gonna be traveling for work for a couple of weeks, which is great because I'm like, honey, I am going to nerd out like you can't believe with my old history books at home and and get going on the uh, on the Shields High podcast. So, um, I you know I'm somebody who listens to I've been listening to history podcasts for years, and I really appreciate a lot of the uh, research and care that that's gone into many of them. But really, there's only a, a handful of them that have any sense of storytelling and theatricality. A lot of them are like people reading from a textbook. So I, I appreciate the information, but it's tough to hear. And then in 722, this happened. And then in 815, this happened. And then also this guy who was the son of this guy who was pushing for this other guy to become, you know, that that's tough to listen to. For So we're trying to do information, storytelling, theatricality, important battles, and also not the... Look, there's a lot of political correctness stuff. When you're talking about uh, the big wars and the big battles between Christians and Muslims in history, I'm going to tell you what it was really like and what was really happening. So, Shield Tie Podcast, and uh, we'll be right back. i got a little follow-up for you on the uh, Fire and Fury book. We'll get to that in a moment. I'm, I think, I guess five or six chapters into it now. I'm reading it. You know, it's kind of a rehash. A lot of the stuff is... There's some, there's some, uh, some, you know, juicy tidbits here and there, but for the most part, it's a lot of you know, and then this happened, and then this happened. I don't know. It's not as good as, not not as good a read as I was hoping it would be. Even though I think about you know half of it or more is is fake, doesn't matter. We'll get into that in one second. Something else that caught my eye. I was on a vacation recently. It was the longest break I I have had continuously without doing radio or any kind of media um, in in seven years, maybe, I think. I had a week off. It was crazy. I was like, oh, gosh, what am I going to do with all that? And then it went by in a flash. There were a few days, though, where I managed to leave my smartphone in the, and maybe this was at Miss Molly's urging, I give her credit for it, but leave it in the hotel safe or whatever, next to my bed, didn't matter. Left it in the hotel room. And spent at least a, a, a couple of days without a phone. I mean, I would check it later on in the day if I needed to and, and all the rest, but didn't have it on me. It's really important. We are all so attached to these devices. And while it's made working and communicating a lot easier, it also means that you now have to actively, whoever you are, whatever you're doing in this country right now, you have to actively decide to disconnect from all this. You have to force yourself, you know, I'm not going to not going to be looking at the latest ball game scores. I'm not going to be looking if you're me at the news cycle stuff and you know, all that or the stock charts or whatever whatever it may be, you know, or even just, you know, the parent teacher association meeting emails that are coming in all the time. Whatever you got, you got to create space for yourself. I managed it for a couple of days. It was amazing. I, you know, I I do think that the sweet spot for technology was when cell phones became 
commonplace, but it was still a little expensive to use them. And so you had a phone. If you needed to talk to somebody, you could reach them. But none of the texting, no internet, none of that. No playing music on the phone. It was just a communication device. So I think that was like circa 2000. That was really the that was really the peak for me. And, and since then, you know, beepers weren't enough. You know, beepers weren't really getting it done. Uh, you, do any of you even remember that? I mean, unless you were, unless you're a doctor or something. I mean, very few people had beepers, but that was. For a while, it was a thing that cool kids had in like the mid-90s. Uh, but Georgetown University, my little brother went there. Uh, my uh, phenom- phenomenal younger brother, my uh, the, the Rock, the stalwart uh, member of the Sexton family, uh, he went to Georgetown. And Georgetown has said, you know, we're going to have a basketball game where fan cell phones need to be kept in pockets. No videoing the basketball game. Okay? And and this is something that we need to work on as as a culture. The the whole country, you know, and some places worse than others, but to actually be present and enjoy something for what it is without taking a crappy video of it to, you know, for later, right? If you happen to be on a beach in Southern California, and there's the first sighting of a venomous yellow be- uh, yellow-bellied sea snake for the first time in like decades, which just happened, by the way. Yeah, very very poisonous. You do not want to get bitten by one. First time in a long time. Video that because like that's going to go viral and that's pretty cool, right? Or if you ca- if you have a video of your dad uh, stepping out and sliding on the driveway because it's totally iced over and he kind of gets his balance. You know, that went viral this week, you know, or a really cute puppy video, whatever, fine. But things like live events, sunsets, beautiful places in nature. You know, if you have to take a photo or two here, they're fine, right? I'm not, I'm not trying to be the, the, the phone police, or maybe I am. Uh, but this notion that you need to video things. I mean, when I was in Aruba, I saw people who were like walking along the beach, taking videos of the beach with their phone. It's like, I'm like, what are, are you going to be back in your, in your cubicle? Like, Hey, I need to watch that, that beach video I took. It just doesn't, I don't get it. I don't know what, and at a basketball game, it is televised. Like you can DVR it and they have really fancy cameras and it's professionally done and millions of people are watching it, you know? What people don't want to watch is the phone in your hand in front of them that you are taking a shaky, grainy, very far away video of something that they're trying to enjoy. It even occasionally happens like theater, Broadway plays and so it's just we need we need to not be barbarians, folks. You know, we need to put the put the phones away. I've been telling you for a long time and I've gotten very good about this now. I will say I do not. Uh, if I'm out to dinner, the phone is never on the table. And unless uh, unless I think I'm getting a call that is urgent, no phones, no phones. I see people do this now where they sit with me at a dinner table and they'll or lunch or whatever. And they take the phone out of their pocket and they leave it on the table in front of me so I can see it. And I'm always like, well, why do I think why do I want to see your phone? I don't want to see it vibrate when you get a text message. I, I don't want to see your your Instagram notification that uh, people from the the Real Housewives have posted a, a video or whatever. Like, no, I don't want to see any of that. So so uh, I give kudos to Georgetown here for being like, you know what, guys? Just watch the basketball game. 
Don't videotape the basketball game with your phone. You are watching a live event. You're surrounded by other people. Live in the moment a little bit. You, you are never, I mean, I'll be honest with this. I have never videotaped a live event and then later on been like, wow, that's amazing. Let me watch that. It's just never happened. So I think that, it, and, and I do know that people doing it in front of me is very annoying. I know I'm a little, I'm a little bah humbug, a little curmudgeonly right now, but I think it's important. Now, completely switching gears, changing pace, and getting into something else. Megan McCain, uh, on the View. She had a, uh, an opportunity to ask some questions of this fellow, uh, Michael Wolf, who wrote this book, Fire and Fury, and. He's making a lot of money off of this book, but I don't know how many more books he's going to sell after this one's done because he has not done well in the defend your credibility department. And I give credit to Megan here for pushing the issue a bit. Play the clip, please. Your credibility is being questioned. Trump says the book is full of lies, misrepresentation. Let, let me finish, please. Let, who my credibility is being questioned uh, by. New York Times, Maggie uh-huh. Haberman, New York Times, John Martin, David Brooks, CNN's Allison Camerata, Tony Blair, Tom Barak, Kate Walsh, Anna Wintour, all denying quotes. Washington Post reporter Mark Berman was in the Four Seasons the same time as Ivanka Trump. You admitted to mixing up Mark with Mike Berman. I, what do I you regret, say to the people? I regret mixing up Mike Berman and Mark Berman. I'm just confused. Were you friends with Steve Bannon and Roger Ailes beforehand? And you were like, come to my house for an off-the-record dinner, and then you reported on it? Or was it on the record? Yes, no, fair fair question, and I'll tell you what happened. This was actually an off-the-record dinner. That's why people hate journalists, by the way. It's why I don't believe in the concept of off-the-record, this right here. Okay, um, Okay, so. uh, Yes, I I would always be careful about, about that. That's why people hate journalists. I gotta say, Megan's totally right. This notion of of journalist ethics and protecting sources and all this stuff, they, they change the rules on this all the time. You know, you talk to a journalist and you are you are putting your career and perhaps more than that in their hands. And there's no real there's no real reprisals for them breaking their journalistic ethics. There's no uh, there's no punishment that will be meted out to them. Think about this for a moment. This guy, now, people should know, people should know better, right? But th- this guy, Wolf, has uh, a dinner, and you got Bannon there, and you got Roger Ailes there, you got these people in attendance, and it's off the record, but then he just decides that, it, you know, it, the stuff they said was really interesting, so it's no longer off the record. This is, this is why people hate journalists, and I tell you this all the time. Journalists are among the worst people I've ever met in my entire life. It's true. Journalists are uh, are a oh, now look there are I have to say this too right I, there are some great journalists risking their lives telling the truth doing amazing things there's great people on the opinion side great people on the hard news side of things I get all that right but as a general profession all right as a general profession particularly people who think of themselves as journalists not as hosts or opinion people or whatever, because there's an honesty, as I always say, that comes with, yeah, here's my opinions, here's what I think. Big J journalists have a particular attitude and and view of themselves. Journalists at the Times and the Washington Post and whatever. And they are a a narcissistic and very insecure bunch, which is not a good combination. And they all are obsessed with their own importance and the importance of their work and what they're doing and everything else. So yeah, you can't you can't trust journalists. That's unfortunate. As a general rule, there are exceptions to it, but that's something to always keep in mind. People say, "Oh, it's off the record." Huh? 
You know, you got to act like it's not really off the record because things like this will happen. But this guy Wolf would do that. I mean, how much more damaging can these interviews be after the release of this book for his credibility, for his ethics, for anything? I mean, the guy says things like, if it rings true, it is true. I told you about that, which in many ways is, is the, the heart, the, uh, the corroded heart of fake news right there. And yet here we are now, people still talking about what's in there and talking about what's in the book. This is this is what we're up against. You've got a media apparatus that will make any excuse and will do whatever they can to defend people like this wolf character because it serves he serves a purpose in the short term. But what does it tell us about this profession of journalism now that people will write a book like this, it'll get so much attention, and sure enough, he'll go on the record with off-the-record stuff. Uh, you know, I, I, it's... Look, if you did this, and this is what really... About, if you did this and you were a lawyer, if you did this and you were a doctor, there would be professional sanctions. You you actually would get in trouble, right? If, if, if you go see a medical professional and, you know, you have, I don't know, let's say you have a somewhat embarrassing medical issue, whatever, or just a private medical issue, whatever it is. And that doctor is like, oh, this would be a great scoop because this person's famous, so I'm going to go tell people about it. The doctor's going to lose his license, which, after all that medical school and stuff, is going to be a big, big, big problem. So there's some confidentiality enforcement, at least. I'm not saying it's perfect, but at least it's there. Same thing with a lawyer, right? If you sit down with a lawyer, like, look, you know, I wasn't guilty of that murder, but I was having an affair and, you know, yada, yada. And the lawyer's like, wow, this is a great scoop. Let me call page six over at whatever. That lawyer is going to lose the ability to practice law if that comes out and the Bar Association takes action, etc. Journalists, it's the Wild West. They, they, do, they do whatever they want. They say whatever they want. They, they make these determinations about what sources get protection and what sources don't as they go. And I've, I've, if some of you have been with me now for, well, at least for a year, I was saying this. In the Trump era, journalists will break any of their most sacred rules as long as it damages Trump. And that's what, that's what we see. They'll, they'll burn sources. Off the record becomes on the record. Doesn't matter. It, they are all in with the hashtag resistance. And, and that's why I think the Wolf book has been illuminating in a sense. That's why I think there's been... It's a really worthwhile discussion that's come out of this because it shows that this guy is kind of a, you know, he's fabricating stuff. He's exaggerating stuff. He's completely casting any ethics aside. And sure, some in the press have been taking him to task for it, but a lot of people are just like, well, it hurts Trump, so we'll go with it. It hurts Trump, so we'll, we'll run along with it. I mean, one of the running one of the running threads in the book as well is, oh, you know, Trump's kids and he has all this nasty stuff to say about Trump's kids. Uh, They're really nice, really successful and smart people, actually. So, you know, it's just the guy just missed them. This guy Wolf missed the mark by a mile. It's frustrating, frustrating to see this. But uh, good job with Meghan McCain on the quest. She she nailed him. She nailed Wolf more directly and more effectively than any other interviewer I have seen. And her line about this is why people hate journalists is is very true, because it is why people hate journalists. Uh, 844-900-2825. That's 844-900-BUCK. If you got any thoughts on this or anything else, we'll be right back. Putting no, no, up no, a wall wait, isn't I'm going sorry. to stop illegal drugs coming into this country, and you know that. 
They oh, come that's not, that's by ridiculous. air and they come in tunnels. I've been in them. I've been they in those tunnels. They come all different very ways. Cramped, are you saying, I'm scary. sorry, Christopher, are you telling the viewers yeah. that no drugs come through the southern no, border? Did you I'm just saying say the that? idea that a wall is going to be, be the an difference? apple, don't be a banana. <laughs> I like I like Kelly Ed Conway trolling uh, Chris Cuomo there. <laughs> be an apple, don't be a banana. Oh, man. Um, yeah. So where were we? Oh, she's talking. They're talking about drugs there. And it's classic. This is the wall debate. Now, that's in microcosm. This is the wall debate. Say, well, they can build tunnels or they can come via air. And I would say, yeah, OK. You know, you also you can have a lock on your front door or not. If if you have a lock on your front door, the burglars can kick your door in. They can come in through a window. They can uh, do any number of things. But if you have a lock on your front door, at least there's a chance that if somebody comes along and wants to get, you know, wants to just kind of see what's going on, they try it. You know, they they have to break something to get in. They have to take that affirmative step. They can't just open the door, walk in, see what they want, and walk out. Right? It makes it harder. If there's a, if you have a gate around your property, let's say, or if you have a gate on on the, you know, the uh, driveway to your home for your mansion. No, but really, I mean, if you have a, maybe you're on a country road and you got a gate set up somewhere, yeah, they can get out of the car and they can walk, you know, a uh, hundred yards across a field to your house or something. But you know, you might still want to have a gate for security reasons. Any security measure is imperfect. Arguing that a wall is imperfect is the dumbest argument. Argue that a wall does nothing. Oh, you can't because it obviously does, right? That's what they're, oh, it's not going to stop everything. Such dishonesty in this stuff. It's it's remarkable. They're really worried, by the way, that a wall is going to get built. And remember, we had the director of uh, Immigrations and Customs Enforcement on yesterday. He says, we have places where there's a wall. And guess what? Crossings dropped a lot. Didn't go to zero, but they dropped a lot. I don't think we're ever going to be in a place where illegal immigration in the United States is zero, but let's make it, you know, a thousand a year instead of a hundred thousand a year. How about that? Well, let's work on that. They won't even have the argument based on reason and rationality, though. It's just, oh, it's just all this emotional nonsense from them. By the way, I want to. I knew this would happen, and I was going to say, oh, just wait, you'll see. The spin on Trump's uh, crap hole comments, although that's not the quote. You'll have to. Family show, you'll have to see for yourself what he said, but you, you all figure it out. But in case there are young ones listening, I've got to keep the language clean. Uh, and I know they're young, especially now with the Shields High podcast. I got kids in high school who are like, I love Shields High, so I got to you know, I gotta make sure we keep, keep decorum in the Freedom Hut. But Trump's crap hole comment is now already being translated by the media into, oh, he called the people, he called immigrants from those countries, let's say, crappy. It's not what he said. And the reason, look, I wish the president had used different language when he's talking about this. But there is a difference between calling a country bad and calling the people in it bad or people from it bad. Those are two different things. Just like I was saying before with the example of Soviet Union, Soviet Union, evil, bad, totalitarian, despotic. Everyone who lives there is not bad. A lot of great people actually live in the Soviet Union, lived in the Soviet Union, right? We we took a lot of great people from the Soviet Union to this country. So, you know, come on. This is not complicated stuff, but we have to talk about it because the media is going to be so dishonest in their discussions of it. 
And I would know on CNN all night, it's just been one big banner of the quote. And one of my uh, colleagues here in the hut pointed out, notice how they're not they're not blanking out or or doing the usual because there's a you know, he used a, a curse when he was talking about this, these countries. Allegedly, again, allegedly, I'm not even sure he said it. And I find it hard to believe he would say it in the way he said. Uh, or the, I find it hard to believe Trump said what they say he said in the way that they say he said it. I think I got that right. I was a little, sorry, I know. I'm not trying to make anyone dizzy here. I made myself dizzy. Um, but they're, they're now already taking that leap of, oh, it's not only did he say this about the countries, he said about the people. And that's just not true. It's not fair. Um, but they're not interested in fairness or accuracy. They're interested in hashtag resistance. We got Sean Davis coming up here in a minute to talk about Feinstein releasing that transcript and also shadow banning on social media of conservatives. What's that about? Well, if you stay, you'll find out. You know, it's been a few weeks already, I think, since we've had him on the show, but he is back with us now. He is the guy on Twitter that is most likely to smack down and educate a liberal at the same time, at least in my book. Sean Davis is with us now. He is co-founder of The Federalist. Check out his latest at thefederalist.com. Sean, Happy New Year. Great to have you on in 2018. Happy New Year. I'm happy to be back. Uh, and very exciting. It is now The Buck Sexton Show. We got the name change we were waiting for. us. That's very exciting stuff on our end. So great to have you joining in the fun. Tell me about Google targeting The Federalist with fake fact checks. What is this about Google having fact checkers now? Yeah, so we actually found out about this from the Daily Caller, <clears throat> which ran a story noting that Google seemed to be disproportionately targeting conservative sites with dubious fact checks. And so we looked into it, and lo and behold, if you search for The Federalist on the first page of uh, search results at Google, you get a little box in the upper right with a quick wiki description, and then a very odd box where uh, Google essentially reviews certain claims made by the publication. And for us, it turns out that Google, out of our 12,000-plus articles that we published, Google uh, found three dubious claims from us that had been debunked and unproven by Snopes and various other sites. Um, but the really interesting thing there is the, uh, the claims that Google cited as being debunked, we never made. Uh, they appear nowhere in our articles, and the debunkings of these claims, which we allegedly made, never mention us or our articles or our writers, probably because we never made them. It's a, it's a fascinating spectacle. I didn't know that Google was doing this. This must be new. Yeah, we didn't either. Um, we, we got a tip-off from someone who said, hey, have you seen this Daily Caller article? It looks like you're being targeted, too. And we looked into it and said, huh, yeah, this is, it was brand new to us. And, and uh, it, the weird thing is, that uh, sites like Vox, which seem to have to reset their um, days without an embarrassing fake news incident uh, daily, uh, they're exempt from this. And a bunch of other liberal sites are exempt from it. But, you know, Daily Caller and The Federalist and a couple others, for some reason, we got the uh, the VIP treatment. Sean, uh, have you heard this Project Veritas clip, by the way, about Twitter and, and their version of fact-checking or downgrading bad people? Do you know what I'm talking about? Yes, yes. We're, we're, we want to play that audio for everybody listening, and then I want to have you tell me what you think is going on here. Let's say it was a pro-Trump thing, and I am anti-Trump. I was like, oh, I, just, I banned this whole account. I go to you. And then it's at your discretion. And if you're, if you're anti-Trump, you're like, oh, you know what? I'm always right. 
The idea of the shadow ban is that you ban someone but they don't know they've been banned because they keep posting but no one sees their content. So they just think that no one's engaging with their content when in reality no one's seeing it. You look for Trump or America or any of like 5,000 like keywords to describe a redneck. It's not going to ban a mindset, it's going to ban like a way of talking. Sean, a shadow ban on social media that targets conservatives? Sounds like conspiracy theory stuff, except it's happened. It has, and I think it's important to step back, um, because this isn't just a problem uh, at Twitter. So let's step back and look at the whole technocracy in Silicon Valley. So we had last year reports that Facebook, according to its own uh, contractors and employees, was deliberately discriminating against conservatives and conservative topics in their, in their trending topics bar. Um, we have Google that's running fake fact checks, uh, predominantly targeted at conservatives. We have Twitter engineers uh, admitting to shadow banning conservatives and making conservative content disappear. We have YouTube, which uh, is inexplicably demonetizing certain conservatives so they can't make money off their wildly popular videos. There's a trend happening here. It's all going in one direction, and it's extremely disturbing. Sean, I've been saying for a while that the stranglehold on information, I would say propaganda, that the left in this country had over the media uh, was was greatly lessened. I mean, they still have a, a pretty dominant market share of the different newspapers and major broadcast channels, but with, most importantly, the Internet, but talk radio and Fox News... There are alternative voices and alternative means of getting information such that Dan Rather or Cronkite or whomever is no longer treated like the voice of God made real on TV, right? But I worry that we are entering a new phase now that in some ways is even more pernicious where it's all algorithms that will be doing the partisan cherry picking. It's back end engineers that are unaccountable to anyone who really have more sway, places like Facebook and Twitter and Google, more of an input and control over information and the national conversation on any issue than I think any media outlet has ever had in the past. Oh, I I completely agree. I think the golden age of the democratized Internet is over, if it ever even existed. And you can even see it in kind of Google's business as a whole. Um, It's not just enough for them to control search results. Okay, so they've also got email. They've got Google Chat. They tried moving into Google Phone. They're even moving now into Google Fiber, which means they are wanting to control the very uh, pipes through which um, all the information flows, in addition to controlling what information flows through it and how it appears. It, it's, it's something that um, seemed to come on quickly that poses a lot of um, questions about how to deal with it. I mean, should, do they need to be regulated as utilities? Do they need to be rung up on antitrust charges for discriminating um, against uh, their users? Uh, there are a lot of sticky questions here that we're going to have to answer and unwind in order to make sure that everyone's actually being treated fairly. We're speaking to Sean Davis of The Federalist. He's co-founder there. Sean, uh, just before we let you go, I wanted to get into a little bit of this a release of testimony by Feinstein. You're, you worked on Capitol Hill. You know the ins and outs of how this behind-closed-doors testimony versus open testimony and when do they release the transcript, all that stuff. You're familiar with it. What the heck happened here, and what's this I'm seeing? Feinstein said she had a cold. Is that a joke? Oh, it, it's been an absolute disaster for Feinstein. Um, so what happened was uh, Glenn Simpson, in order to avoid a subpoena, 
chose to come give a confidential voluntary interview and testimony to the Senate Judiciary Committee. So he was in there for nine or ten hours, talked about it. Throughout the transcript, we now know, his attorney repeatedly said, you know, this has to be confidential, this has to be confidential. And then out of nowhere, Feinstein released it. And, you know, is somebody on the outside who wants to not know what's going on? I'm glad they released it because it is so indicting of Simpson and Fusion GPS that just to boggles the mind why she released it. But from an investigator's point of view, um, it, it's an absolute abomination. Um, you, you don't do that. Number one, because their investigation isn't over. There are still people they want to interview, uh, probably people they don't want to have to subpoena. And what those people now see is that there's no expectation of confidentiality. So why on earth would they go in and give a voluntary interview? So instead of getting information, you may actually have uh, the perverse effect where the committee is going to get less information and, and have less understanding of what happened with Russia in the, in the election than they did before Feinstein did that. And then the other aspect is there was information included in that testimony that future witnesses or potential witnesses probably didn't have. So to the extent that maybe they want to harmonize their testimony with that uh, in order to give a different version of the truth, that's now a huge risk. The, the whole investigation has been tainted. So from an investigator's point of view, it was it was just an absolute unmitigated disaster for her uh, with uh, a ton of unforeseen negative consequences for the investigation. So why would Feinstein do it, Sean? Uh, uh, I don't I, I think part of it was just personal pique. She's mad that uh, Grassley and Graham did the criminal referral without begging her permission. Um, part of it, you know, you alluded to it earlier where she said she was pressured to do it. And then she said, no, I wasn't pressured to do it. And then when another reporter said, well, but why'd you say that? She said, and I kid you not, no, 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 I never said that. And the reporter said, no, we, we have it on tape. And she said, no, no, that, I never said that. Uh, I'm honestly beginning to wonder if she's, if, if she's maybe not all there. Because the decision uh, she's made here and the statements she has made make no sense. And, and it's there. There are things that are against her own interest. So I, I honestly don't know what's going on. It's nuts. All right. I mean, I, I guess that makes as much sense as anything else right now. It seems pretty crazy to me that she would release the transcript. But there we go. Sean Davis, everybody. Uh, he is a co-founder of The Federalist. Thefederalist.com is the website. You should all go check out. Sean, great to have you, man. Talk to you soon. Thank you, sir. Team, we are going to roll into a break here before I close up shop in the Freedom Hunt. Uh, do send me your thoughts on the show this week at facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. We will get into a Team Buck roll call in just a few minutes, and I might share some random thoughts on a Netflix show that I've been enjoying that I think you all might like. So there's that as well. Back in just a few. All right, Team Buck, before I get into... Uh, another yet another edition of Team Buck Roll Call, where we get to hear from all of you. I wanted to share some unsolicited reviews of a couple of Netflix shows that I've been watching because I got some thoughts on them, and I want to share them with you. Because when I'm not researching history for the Shields High podcast, which, by the way, has been doing very well, thanks to all of you. Please keep the word, uh, keep spreading the word, keep it out there that uh, this is. We're gonna have another episode on Monday. We're getting into the Crusades, everybody. It's gonna be very interesting. Make sure you subscribe on iTunes, Shields High, or follow on the iHeart app at Shields. Uh, Shields High is what you want to sh- uh, search for there as well. So the two shows. I'll start with the bad, then I'll get into the good. 
So I like comic books. I'm not somebody who's like, oh, it's not right that the guy can fly and shoot lasers from his eyes. I, I don't I don't get into all that, right? I, I, I like comic books. I, I can suspend disbelief. Yeah, sure, gamma rays, which would actually kill you really quickly. Maybe it would turn you into a giant green monster with incredible strength who then goes back to being a normal person. Sure, you know, I, I, I'm good with all that. I grew up, I love the X-Men. I, I was really into, I, I'm going to be honest, I was a Marvel Comics guy with the exception of, uh, well, Marvel Comics plus Batman, so, which is DC, I know. But I, I watched the Punisher series, which has uh, John Bernthal's the actor in it. And, you know, he does a really good job. I mean, I, I was impressed with him even all the way back in the early Walking Dead days when he was in seasons, I think, one and two, maybe even three. Uh, he does a great job, but it, it's one of the rare examples of a well-executed but bad screenplay, right? So it's it's a they do a good job with the story, but it's not a very good story. Meaning that the way that they've written the Punisher series on Netflix is just kind of boring. And, and I really I really resent the the constant need that Hollywood has. And now you know Netflix is part of Hollywood. Netflix Netflix is a big powerful player in Hollywood now. But, you know, you've got the Punisher, and sure enough, who is he fighting against? Former military mercenaries on U.S. soil. I'm just like, of all the bad guys in the world, you really want to, you know, we, we can't have uh, narco traffickers. We can't have, uh, you know, jihadist terrorists. We can't have old school Russian or Italian mafia or, you know, Asian triads or any, you know, we can't have any of that. No, no, we have to have the Punisher is shooting former military who have joined some Blackwater-type outfit. I mean, it's just, you know, why why are these the bad guys at the Punisher? In, in the comic book series, as I, as I recall, he was going after, like, the mafia, organized crime. Yeah, very bad people doing things to innocent people. But in this case, I just feel like the choice of— this is also one of my big problems with uh, the whole Born Identity series. You know, who are the real bad guys? The bureaucrats at Langley. It's like, come on. That's the scariest people in the world. I just think it's kind of pathetic after a while. It's lazy. It's just lazy storytelling uh, because you know they don't want to offend anybody or whatever. So there's that. And so I just thought the Punisher wasn't very good in terms of storyline. Which it doesn't matter how well you do a bad story. You know, you can take a a C story and do it at an A level, and you'll get like a C plus, maybe B minus show. But, you know, you can take a an A story and do it at a B level and it's like an A minus. You know, it's still the story is what matters most. You know, the story is the thing that really can get it done. So anyway, that's that's my thought. And then the other one was a Mindhunter, which I think is great. It's not it's definitely not for kids to watch. So any of the young Team Buck squad out there, this is an 18 plus show. All right. Your parents are not not going to bring you in the room for this one. Because it's based on a lot of real cases. And, in fact, the three protagonists, two male, one female, are pretty – I mean, it is inspired by true characters, I think you could say. It's not necessarily uh, you know, a, a true story in that sense. But some of, the, some of the cases that they describe are real cases, and they even use testimony – or not testimony, but interviews from inside the prison with some of these serial killers – Mindhunter is a very good show. So if you get a chance to check it out, maybe this weekend, while I'm uh, deep diving on Crusades history, uh, you, you should. I think you will very much enjoy it. Big, big uh, high five, two thumbs up for Mindhunter. That was 
a, a little a little free Netflix move, uh, show tip from me. And now we can get into some. I know I'm a little late here. Some team Buck speaks. We've got uh, oh here Robin saying I see you're coming to Fort Wayne in March. If you and Miss Molly need anything, don't be shy to ask. As a member of the Freedom Hut, my family and I would be happy to help. Well, Robin, thank you so much. And yes, indeed, I'm coming out for a conference to Fort Wayne in March and uh, very much looking forward to it. Radio conference. It's going to be awesome. Those of you in the Fort Wayne area, if you're out in Indiana, definitely plan to come and hang out. Uh, if you can spend the time, hear me and some other folks on you know from the radio world, we're going to hang out, and uh, I'll always stay beyond whatever the formal speech is to talk to as many folks as want to say hi, and, you know, we can swap stories and all that good stuff. So what do we have next here in the Team Buck Roll Call? I think I might have said it wrong a second ago, but uh, all right, here we go. Uh, TJ writes, I'm fairly certain that Facebook, in addition to Twitter, participates in shadow banning, and I think you are one of the people they downrank. I tried to share your Shields High link earlier on Facebook, and it does not show up in my news feed, and it's not even political. Huh. Well, TJ, thanks for the heads up. I I mean, I could very well be a target of shadow banning. They did a, a version of shadow banning with me at CNN, which is that every time I would manage to get on air and actually have enough time to talk where I wasn't yelled over or they went to commercial, and I, I made a fool of one of their uh, ignoramus pundits, then then I would all of a sudden not hear from that show for like a, a couple of months. So that's I guess that's not really shadow banning. That's just banning. But when you can't do other networks because you're on contract with a network, that's a very nasty little trick they pull. And they certainly did that over at CNN. That, that's the CNN version of shadow banning. Uh, let's see what we got here from. Uh, oh, whoops. Hold on one second. Uh, hey, Buck, this is from Joshua. Do you think foreign intelligence services and diplomats comprehend the bias of the United States mainstream media? That's a very good question, Josh. I don't know. Uh, I think that much of the rest of the world that would be traveling in diplomatic circles, for example, they view everything through a very BBC International. Oh, hello, it's the BBC. We're going to talk now about a conference in some far-off country of international bureaucrats, and our television show is designed to help you fall asleep right away. We hope it is working, courtesy of the BBC. Uh, A lot of them share that internationalist, cosmopolitanist point of view, so they may not really... Well, they probably disagree with the conservative perspective in this country, and so that means they're also likely to overlook any bias on on a leftward uh, tilt in our media. That's going to be it for today in the hut. Tomorrow we got a Freestyle Friday in the works. I'm excited about it, and so I will see you then. Shields high.